film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Very well, thank you Ed. Um, everything considered, mm-hmm. those two words doing most of the heavy lifting in that sentence, I'll be honest. <laughs> but today in particular, in this moment, I'm feeling the benefit of the magic of modern medicine in that my medication is finally kicking in. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> solidarity to anyone who's in the six week side effect window it's not fun <laughs> but it does get better and also a sunny walk because that's all I can really do so it's nice that the weather is playing ball with that at the moment and uh, I had a coffee arguably a little bit too late in the day but I'm still feeling mm-hmm. peppy how are you? Yeah I'm I'm good I have got a week off work uh, which I'm looking forward to. I'm going to do basically nothing except for read some books, put together my film of the year blog post, probably play a lot of Yakuza, mm. teaching. I've been trying to learn how to play Mahjong, which my mum has been very helpful with as someone who played <laughs> Mahjong a lot with her friends for, for years and years and years. So that's kind of like a... I didn't have that on my bingo card that I would learn how to play Mahjong in 2021, but I think that's the way the year is going. But generally, it's been it's been quite a nice week, I think. And one of the things about it that's been quite nice is that... And the people have been joking about this uh, a fair bit, but like the fact that Twitter has mainly been just like Bernie Sanders memes oh. as opposed to... <laughs> just anything else that it could have been and and the joke i've seen a lot multiple people make which is not really a joke at all (laughs) is like you know if trump was still on twitter there's no way that he would have allowed that to happen like he would have done something to derail the conversation and just like completely change it so him not being on twitter means that we are in a place where like one meme can just like completely dominate the site to everyone's complete chagrin or you know some people's complete chagrin for days at a time and I, there, there's there's a genuine sense of like ah nature is healing kind of feeling <laughs> to it that we can just focus on one incredibly silly thing for days at a time without just being completely overwhelmed by news and like I don't want to get into the you know ah brunch brunch is back on the menu boys kind of <laughs> vibe of it all thinking ah yes of course you know the bad man is gone so now we can get back to normal i obviously there's there's still tons of fucking problems in this country and Mm. in the world but it is nice (laughs) he's not like occupying every like every other minute of my day where i'm just like constantly worried of what awful things he could do with the might of the american government behind him like just him not having that him not having the platform of twitter yeah for the moment at least it's just nice it's just very nice well yeah no doubt i mean it's not even a month since your coup attempt (laughs) (laughs) i think you guys are allowed this the entire world is allowed this and yes i'm with you in that a lot more needs to be done and i'm a little bit uh i think it was a genius uh twitter user whose account handle escapes me just now but just summed it up by saying you will all really put bernie anywhere but the white house (laughs) (laughs) 
But I can also say in years to come, I was there when that meme was born. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't need to refer to know your meme and just sitting Bernie. Like what? Like what is it that? Um, it, because the thing is, is like it, just people sitting down. Oh, who who realised how many famous images involve human beings sitting down? Mm. Uh, for him to be it's, a part it's the of. great, it's the great equaliser, as uh, Mr. Burns and Homer once discussed. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. So we'll go on to the news this week. It's a fairly light week. But um, there are a couple of stories that leapt out to us. Uh, The first one being the news that we're getting a series about the UK government's response to the coronavirus pandemic in which Kenneth Branagh is going to be playing Boris Johnson, uh, which is extremely complimentary casting. But also it's being directed by Michael Winterbottom. And that's potentially very interesting i like michael winterbottom quite a bit i think he's 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 kind of too prolific to be great in some respects like he tries a lot of things and like some of them don't work out but the things that do work tend to be stuff that i really really dig and this seems like it could be a really interesting fit for him depending on what approach he takes if it's you know him being very self-reflexive like in the 24-hour party people vein if it's him being kind of like really acidic about it I think there's potential for it to be a really bracing piece of work and, you know, no, not the show we need right now, but, like, I think it it could be interesting to see someone make something about this incredibly recent history before the, the, before the die is set over this whole sort of thing. Like, if you can have a, a strong narrative of, like, yeah, these people really fucked everything up, presented now before they can you know present themselves as heroes who dealt heroically with a difficult situation i think there's some value in that i'm with you ed i have to say this does not feel to me the same as for example james graham and the uncivil war with old uh, bc as dc and the only press being allowed was dominic cummings wife interviewing benedict cumberbatch which is like um mm. if you're really saying that this is art and up for debate, I think you'd lift the embargo and spread it out a bit more rather than just leaving it to that. I still haven't watched it because I can't really stomach it. And I think the Mm. thing is, I do trust Michael Winterbottom. Like, I'm with you in that he's kind of... There's something possibly a bit scattered to him in terms of his work. But I always come out of a Michael Winterbottom film with something and funnily enough Ed I just recently watched Greed mm, which yeah. is a kind of very thinly veiled kind of agitprop against a Sir Philip Green style character which was done before Arcadia Group was in uh, threat and Big Top Shop has been sold where are we going to meet an Oxford Circus now girls we'll, we'll discuss it <laughs> later on the group chat I'm 31, Ed. Fucking hell. (laughs) And the thing about Greed is that personally, and try not to be too spoilery because I know it's still quite a recent release, I think it tries to do a little bit too much, but Mm -hmm. its ambition is really admirable. And its politics are sound, (laughs) you know? So if I, I know that there is, you know, possibly not a lot of good feeling about doing anything about the pandemic directly right now 
Yeah. But it was it's a real kind of kombucha girl moment where it's like a limited series about the pandemic. Michael Winterbottom's directing though, kind of reaction for me. Kenneth Branagh mm. as Bojo though, I don't know. Like I mean, I don't know whether we're gonna see some kind of like Colin Farrell, um not Colin Farrell. <laughs> what was I saying? Well Colin Farrell's penguin, but more I was thinking of uh, Christian Bale. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. M- many white men look the same to me. I'm very sorry. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to go with like Russell Crowe as Roger Ailes. Like, oh. there's a lot of it going around. Oh god, <laughs> it's catching, isn't it? Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Christian Bale in particular is um, uh, in Vice. Um, mm. And I, but then also, and I'm not a massive fan of Kenneth Branagh as an actor anyway. Um, mm. But it's interesting that he's signed up for this. I mean, we'll see. I can't think though. Ed, can you think of anyone alternatively that you would cast as Michael Jackson? I think Muncher from the new Ghostbusters is a good fit. <laughs> I think he's got the the sort of sliminess down. <laughs> um, hmm, that's an interesting question. Who do I think would be a good fit? I don't know. Uh, does Toby Jones feel too obvious? Oh, no. I think he would have a real... A real crack at it, wouldn't he? Mm. Yeah, I do, I do wonder if like people would say that's too obvious a signifier of saying like this is mm. one of the great villains of our time. Mm. Um, uh, Rory Kinnear Ooh, yeah. would be a good one. I just had to think for a second to make sure I didn't mix up Rory and Roy. I always get them mixed up, <laughs> yeah. but R- Rory is, is the one who's is, still alive. Is the, yes, is the son. Um, yeah. Roy Kinnear, though. Yeah, Roy He would Kinnear. also have been a very good choice. Yeah, either. Either or. Those are all excellent suggestions, Ed. I honestly can't kind of place anyone. And I think it's, again, it's that thing like Brendan Gleeson as Trump. You Mm -hmm. do have to lean so much on a certain... Well, I mean, they're just so distinctive in their look, right? And everything's going to look a little bit like cosplay. Mm. Um, So for the actual performance, then you're like, well, do I have to see more of you? Like... You know, same with, I mean, look at The Crown mm-hmm. with Gillian Anderson as Thatcher as opposed to Meryl Streep and uh, both Meryl Streep and Gillian Anderson, neither of them can really stop themselves from kind of moving into something that's like caricature, which is yeah. unintentionally funny. And I think it's a difficult performance to play, but that's the worry is the idea that Johnson's buffoon act will bleed through to this Mm. and yeah that's the danger yeah i think there's there's such a fine line for like trying to embody someone and make them seem like a real character and like you say just doing it as a caricature and and it can be so hard so easy to get caught upon the details and miss like the the part where you actually imbue them with like a soul and not that I particularly think that Bojo's soul is uh, <laughs> particularly a good one, but I think you do need to portray him as like a real person because, you know, his whole career is essentially founded on the fact that he was able to portray himself as like, oh, I just said Daffy, Daffy old weirdo he put on TV. <laughs> and that's why, like, as the years go on, I've, I find myself thinking more and more about how impressive like Anthony Hopkins as Nixon was, where he didn't yeah. really do that much in terms of making a impression they didn't do like they didn't spend a huge amount of time trying to make him look like nixon they just said we want you to kind of embody like the 
corrupt, tortured individual that Richard Nixon was. And we're much more interested in like you doing it a character as opposed to like making sure that you get the voice down. And I, I kind of feel like more people, more more works about real life people would probably benefit from that. Our next story uh, is a sad one. Uh, it was announced just the other day that Larry King had passed away at the age of 87. Uh, obviously, Larry King, just legendary broadcaster who was on American TV for like half a century, just like an outsized figure who even growing up in the UK and not having access to his actual show, he was, you know, someone who was pretty much impossible to avoid because he played himself in TV shows so often. Uh, like I knew him primarily from being on The Simpsons a few times um, and him always being game for a laugh. People were sharing the image of the, the clip of him uh, on 30 Rock talking to Tracy Jordan where partway through their interview, like the Asian markets collapse or something. And then Tracy, he goes to Tracy for analysis of what this means for the financial markets. And he he always seemed in like his appearances in media to be like someone who's very game to kind of like make fun of his persona and how people perceive him. But also he was just like, when you actually watch his interviews, people, he was just like such a fascinatingly disheveled kind of uh interviewer particularly in recent years where it didn't seem like he knew who he was talking to not in a sense of like oh he's old he doesn't know where he was but literally like he seemed like he had just walked in and done no research and i don't know there was something quite um appealing about that of just kind of like him walking in and then just having like these sometimes very cantankerous conversations with people larry i'm on ducktales i mean danny Pudi was just <laughs> It's such a lovely sniping little... There's something about how he managed to make people feel simultaneously at ease and on edge. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where some really great conversations come out. Like, basically, before podcasting, you know, as well. Like, yeah. this is where you saw this kind of um, raconteurish and also quite laid-back interviewer. And another one of my favourite moments is where he gets Debbie Reynolds comfortable mm -hmm. enough to do her impression of Meryl Streep, which, don't get me wrong, everyone has loves a bit of Meryl, but it's very hard to watch her stuff again after seeing Debbie Reynolds kind of completely uh, skewer her. Mm. And again, he's just one of those figures that even though I have never watched his show in entirety, he's just someone as a cultural product that, is so baked into America as a as a figure that it of course it kind of exports without much effort and we were sort of talking briefly offline about the Simpsons and he's just so distinctive and not in a kind of political journalism way just as kind of someone who was like there and cantankerous and always had a microphone and um suspender braces like <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and also someone who just if like was was immensely funny on twitter like whether or not he intended to be like his like his tweets where he, him standing next to his two like strapping young boys who are called like chance and canon <laughs> which is like well you think you look at it and you think it's larry king drill <laughs> is he real life drill <laughs> that's the only explanation um 
But also there was a, a, a an extract from a profile of him the other day where they were talking about how he tweeted, which was basically he would record, he would phone a number, leave a voice message and get one of his assistants to type out whatever his tweet was. And just thinking like, that's such a funny way of engaging with Twitter that you have to call someone, then they get this unhinged voicemail and think, okay, I guess I have to write this and hashtag it with, it's my two cents. <laughs> So rest in peace, Larry King, a thoroughly wonderful weirdo. <laughs> so we'll go on to the main topic for this week, and it is gateway filmmakers. This was inspired by a video that uh, Patrick H. Willems did a few months ago at this point, where he, uh, for people who don't know, Patrick Willems is a uh, YouTuber who does lots of video essays where he talks about film and pop culture. Very recently, he just did one about The O.C., which I enjoyed very much as someone who was really obsessed with that show when it was on the air. And one of the ones he did was he talked about Kevin Smith, who, for him growing up, you know, he's sort of the same age as you and I, sort of in his early 30s, who who grew up watching Kevin Smith's movies and for whom Kevin Smith was, like, a really important filmmaker. And, you know, he watched all of his movies again to kind of reassess, like, how do these movies hold up? What What does Kevin Smith mean to him now and to culture now? And, you know, you and I both watched that and we were kind of discussing it and talking about how Kevin Smith was also kind of an important filmmaker for us, which seems weird because he's now like kind of, I mean, he's not kind of like completely pissed his legacy away or whatever. And he's not like he's irrelevant, but he is like, no, he's no longer like central to like film culture in the way that he was like for many years in the nineties and the early two thousands. So uh, we thought it'd be fun to kind of like talk about other filmmakers who are, really important to our stories as like people who love movies about yeah what who were the filmmakers who when we were coming up when we were growing up really kind of inspired us to kind of seek out more stuff so yeah so uh, i think we'll start with ken smith because obviously he's someone that you and i offline talked about being like really important what was your kind of like relationship to kevin smith's work when you were when you were growing up well it was definitely sort of it began in empire Mm-hmm. And reading Empire and getting to a stage where I was able to sort of rent films under my own <laughs> steam and accord. And there would have been a piece on Clerks. Yeah. And I think that's where I started. And I just felt kind of alive with all of this stingy Gen X sort of apathy because it was just really funny. And that mm. it was black and white as well. And it looked like all of the kind of French New Wave stuff that I'd been that I would go on to study but again it's like how can something talk so much about blowjobs and being black and white like just having just being able to be like oh maybe filth can be art too and then I was like I have to see absolutely everything and I think sort of chasing Amy which Patrick Williams brilliantly says actually really doesn't hold up anymore but Mm. I remember watching that and being feeling really opened up to like oh well yeah sexuality is a really different thing for everyone so that was kind of landmark in its own way and then yeah just kind of absolutely raced through all of it maybe even dogma was actually the first one i watched come mm. to think of it i think because you know what strike me down ed that's right dogma was the first one because that was something that got picked up by channel four in the uk yeah and i must have watched it late night on channel four or even film four with the early days of Freeview, and thought oh wow because 
my mum loved it as well. And again, it was really funny and kind of had this message of like spirituality and faith over organised religion that felt really rebellious, but also very smart, like going into Mm. sort of the kind of um, rarer texts and characters that are studied across kind of Christian theology. And of course, dogma is so different from the majority of his work because it is this big budget film with Alan Rickman and George Carlin and Alanis Morissette and Salma fucking Hayek. <laughs> like, and it looks really different. And I think because it's still within the viewer universe of his characters and yet like a different take. And the thing is, is that Kevin Smith is essentially a... a um, he grew up on comic books and that's how his brain works and that's how he makes his films like each each mm. film is a is a comic book all set within the same universe and the same characters who overlap but everything has a slightly different tone and i think he just again is one of those filmmakers who is a film fan himself and i think we were sort of coming up and becoming film fans as the first generation of really geeky (laughs) film lovers became filmmakers. So thinking Mm. about him and Edgar Wright as well, and how it was kind of, you know, their gateways, not only because you like their specific stuff, because they both have very distinct voices of their own, but you kind of pick up on, oh, that's a reference to this, or that's a reference to that. And if you like it, or you're talking about it, I'm already going to want to watch it and have my own point of view on that conversation and I think that's it it's it's kind of the 70s were directors who were film lovers and then the kind of late 80s and 90s you had film fans starting to rise up and being able to pick up Mm. camera equipment and I do think there is a distinction because there's something I think because there's just more and more to watch and in the 70s like the majority of stuff was either that you could watch was either incredibly heavy masterful art or you know really quite vaudeville style like entertainment lot of propaganda and then they sort of mixed everything together and developed so much more sort of different avenues you could go down and then when you had kind of technology and effects starting to really kick in then you got another element I think it was just like the first it, it hit the first level of people who had so many tools and toys in their kind of arsenal. Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, Dogma was the first one for me for Kevin Smith as well. I remember my friend Graham, who was like the friend of mine who was always into like just really cool stuff and would always be the one who would kind of like, hey, you should see this or you should listen to this and like not all of it. Uh, was stuff that I particularly cared for. Uh, he was really into like a lot of metal bands who were like just not for me. But Dogma was one of the ones that you know he was like, oh, you should totally watch this. I think you'll really really like it. And there was that there was an edge of danger to it in some ways because it was obviously a movie that was very heavily picketed when it came out and was mm. a topic of much uh, contro- controversy and discussion. Um, especially because if I remember correctly, it's a Miramax film, isn't it? And it was like one of the ones that Miramax were like putting out as they were being bought by Disney. So I think there was a lot of consternation in the Disney offices about Mm. how 
they suddenly were like, uh, okay, so we have this movie that's like all about religious stuff and having this very scathing approach to organized religion was, as you said, like actually being very um, open-minded about, you know, different beliefs and things like that and talking about faith and versus religion and things like that and having this very, um, you know, within the context of it being kind of like a, a, a comedy with like dick and fart jokes that you know having this kind of fairly serious like discussion of these ideas and this these kind of like theological ideas of them suddenly being like oh right we have to put this out great and i remember watching it and having much the same thing it's like wow like this is like really funny the dialogue's really funny it's got these really kind of like big ideas that you wouldn't expect to see in a studio comedy and then from that like looking into who this kevin smith guy was and discovering like oh he so he did uh you know this movie clerks and i think the thing for clerks for me i think this is probably true for like so many people is like the story of how clerks was made was so uh inspirational Mm. because like the whole thing with clerks was like you know he he like went to film school for like a semester and dropped out and then he was like okay i'm just going to take the money that i could have been spending on film school i'm just going to rack up loads of credit card debt and i'm just going to like make a movie with my friends in the shop that i work in and you know taking it to film festivals and it happening happening to be seen by a film group. I think by Matt Solazite maybe, or he was like one of the like oh, early, no. like champions of that movie, yeah. like writing a rave review of it. And it suddenly being, and it getting picked up and him, his career just like taking off as a result from that. Like there was something so inspirational about like the scrappiness of it, of just this guy who watched a ton of movies and like just wrote a script that came from his life, being able to, turn it into a into a career and to go on to make all of these movies and similarly robert rodriguez was like really big for me uh because of that because of the story of like him like submitting himself to uh experimental <laughs> medical treatments to raise the money to make el mariachi and then that leading to him being someone who gets to make like really big budget movies or you know tarantino like half making a film like with his friends which ended up being mostly lost but using like that as an experience to then go and like write just like write tons and tons of scripts and through sheer force of you know personality more or less being able to become like one of the most lauded directors of his generation like there was something really appealing about how all these guys had these stories that were kind of like you know just real self-made stories in ways because like none it wasn't like any of them really had much in the way of connections to the movie industry they all just kind of like hustled and wrote and you know happened to you know really look out in major ways and i think like that was one of the things that made those all three of those guys just like so impactful to me but also like you say with, with edgar wright they were also so like hyper literate about these sort of things and they were so open about talking about their influences and so if you like read an interview with them particularly like tarantino the interviews would be so entertaining in and of themselves and also you would come away with like a bunch of references and in the case of edgar wright as well like one thing that i think was really important for me was on the space dvds the homage meter um that they put out which was basically subtitles that ref came up every time they referenced a specific thing so you could watch it and be like okay so that's a reference to the thing that's a reference to alien and then you could kind of like come away with just like a ton of stuff that made you think okay i should check this out because these guys are all clearly very like smart and talented and they like all of this stuff so i should probably watch some of that as well so i think the 
kind of hyperlink quality of those filmmakers yeah. was one of the things that was like hugely impactful for me. Oh, another thing to say about Mr. Smith is that when he found out in full about Weinstein, he donated a huge amount, basically calculated everything that he'd sort of made from uh, his deals with Miramax and gave it all to a refuge charity. Mm. So, you know, a good a good lad. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that thing, that was also such a huge part of his appeal was like he he was like a real down-to-earth kind of guy and i think yeah patrick williams points this out in the video like at certain point some of his self-deprecating qualities about him not being able to like decide where the camera should go and maybe not being the best filmmaker um just kind of seemed like him acknowledging he had a problem and then not doing anything to fix it but like it was hard not to be won over by him when you saw him being interviewed and just talking smartly but unpretentiously about his work like you got a real sense that he was a guy whose mind you know would go a mile a minute and that that's as well why like you know the dvds of him just doing talks were like huge sellers that everyone i knew at school watched as much as his movies <laughs> you know like it was just like he was such a fun raconteur and i think that's as well like one of the things that all those filmmakers had is that they all had such distinct personalities and they all like really stood out in some way as a result of it. And it became easier to kind of like identify them and identify with them as someone who like, you know, had kind of vague creative aspirations of my own thinking like, oh, like, you know, these guys could do it. Like, that's an option. Yeah. You could sit and just sit down and write a script. And, you know, maybe if you're good enough, something will happen with it. Max out a load of credit cards, mm -hmm. you know, and work with what you have. And there was that big um sort of boom around that time of the right combination and circumstances for a fair few people to be able to do that and you know robert rodriguez was big for a lot of people i definitely owned the uh, guerrilla filmmaking handbook and mm, kind of yeah. referred to it and read it um every night before bed like a bible and yeah i think gateway directors for so many people in so many ways and it took me a lot longer to come to kind of like the mumble core, but like Joe Swanberg and mm -hmm. um, why is their name gone from my head, Ed? Who are the main two? The do the, the do class. classes, the do classes, class done. Yeah, ah, oh, the coffee chair. That's still a delight. Mm. And and a lot of those films still hold up. Like I think Nights and Weekends is particularly good. And it's interesting that Greta Gerwig is the one who really kind of hit big time in filmmaking because i know that the classes mm. have done an awful lot like project wise and joe swanberg's still kind of doing his thing but that greta gerwig is like oh yeah no i i'm a director and i do well i do everything <laughs> which is for a lot of people in hollywood still you know you act first and then you become a director rather than well we all just did whatever we had to do to get the film made like we were cast and crew not cast and crew mm. <laughs> Yeah, it's weird with Greta Gerwig is like you you just mentioning her then and I just started thinking about her early career. It's like, oh yeah, she was cast as like the romantic lead in the Alfie remake with Russell Brand. Oh, God, which is yeah. such a weird thing to think of that, you know, like she obviously broke out of the Mumblecore movement because she's a very charming uh screen presence and clearly like 
a lot of studios looked at that and thought, okay, what can we do with her? And also, you know, this was why she was like picked for the lead for the uh, How I Met Your Mother spin-off, How I Met Your Dad, which didn't go past pilot, fortunately, because apparently it wasn't very good. And also like her, I just don't think she would have the career that she has now if, like, if she had you know been tied to a sitcom for seven years. Uh, or if she did, like the films she produced would have been of a Josh Radner quality, which I don't think uh, I would. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, it's just it's like it's easy to see why she would be like the breakout star of that movement. But also, like it's very interesting to think that she, you know, rejected the easy path in some ways, or like she she definitely didn't kind of get seduced into thinking you know when when alfie wasn't a hit thinking okay well you know like this still didn't work but i'll do the next big budget rom-com she was like no i'm gonna focus in on doing the stuff with you know Noah back or 20th century women i'm gonna focus on the stuff that i actually am interested in and it worked out brilliantly for her i think in terms of where her career has gone since um although i would like to see her acting in things more because i don't think she's actually acted in a movie since 20th century women which is a shame because you know she's a very very good actress yeah for sure were there any directors for you that kind of like were really eye-opening in terms of getting you into particular genres or particular styles of filmmaking i was thinking like a director whose work in general i don't really care for but who was really important in that one specific window where i was like you know sort of 15 16 was uh fernando morales who was the co-director of city of god mm. and city of god was such a mind-blowing thing for me it was basically the movie that got me into world cinema you know yeah. that terrible terrible phrase <laughs> but you know like that was a movie that you know, everyone said, oh, yeah, you see, God, it's like just so, so good. And obviously it's in Portuguese, but, you know, it's just so compelling. And like that was the, the thing that got me over the two-inch hurdle of subtitles <laughs> was seeing that movie and just being like so completely blown back by it and just like what a great crime drama it was, how well it kind of captured the energy and the danger of the favelas, you know, its sense of time and place, how great all the performances were in it. And like... I don't think I've liked a single Fernando <laughs> film since then. Um, like, the, like our push, the Constant Garden is okay, mm. but like that that one movie, you know, coming out in two thousand two or whatever it was, and me seeing it on DVD, like not long after it came out, was like just such a monumental thing for me and making me realise that you know english language cinema is great there's lots of great english language movies but like there's probably a lot of stuff that you don't know because you're not you're not watching it and like that was just so monumental for me i'm with you on city of god as well because it was something that was shown to us in i think my first year of film studies as part of kind mm. of world cinema and it's amazing how that film managed to traverse a lot of the two-inch hurdle for a lot mm. of people i think because it's truly cinematic and what it does with sound and vision as opposed to necessarily dialogue and language mm. you know you can still understand and it doesn't focus too heavily on kind of grainy bits of plot like you yeah just, you just feel it and that is you know what's so 
that's a lot of what I'm looking for from a cinema experience. And I think there's definitely like we've mentioned him before because he's in in the news, but I realize how much I like directors who I keep coming back to because they kicked off how I realized like, oh yeah, auteur theory has a lot in it, but I kind of love people who just completely switch. Um, mm. So Michael Winterbottom, and I think the first of his I saw really consciously would have been, I think, 24-hour party people. Yeah, same for me as well. Right? I was like, yeah, huge. Yeah, and it was so... I think it, there was something really exciting about it being like, oh, Steve Coogan can act. And I really like Steve mm-hmm. Coogan in biopics. And I do think he does well with Winterbottom, even if Greed isn't hugely successful. You know, and to push forward how important the North is and Manchester and everything that kind of came with that. But then also Winterbottom also doing a cock and bull story and then watching nine songs um, as part of my master's and my dissertation research and then he goes he goes and does the trip and I feel like there's a lot of similar qualities with Richard Linklater mm. and I think it was before Sunrise was the very first Richard Linklater film I saw and then going back to watch Slacker and it's like how is this the same guy but and then mm. a- again learning that you know Linklater would shoot adverts for six months to save up money to make the films that he wanted to make and again that's a romance and that like you can do something very practically to realise your dream appealed to me hugely Um, and again like Linklater um, boyhood is is boredom really to me unfortunately (laughs) but it doesn't mean that I still won't come out to bat for him with different films and I'm still really glad that he is pushing forward with time and perception and and playing with that in in film and constantly being drawn back to it and it's nice to see people who don't seem like who've been in film a long time started off from the out being very suspicious of the system have a very different idea of success and therefore haven't like sold out or gone off the boil like they're, they're still kind of doing their own thing and I think in the sort of great if I ever try to sort of like map my influence like a family tree, I think being like a, a fan or like um, finding the appeal in both Michael Winterbottom and Richard Linklater led me to Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm, yeah. Because even though he has a more set visual tone and you could argue sort of similar themes, I still think the fact that he kind of chops and changes between things and seems like someone who genuinely has such a whale of a time like if anyone hasn't seen that moment which is on youtube which is a documentary of the behind the scenes of magnolia like he's such a little cheeky imp (laughs) like he's Mm. probably incredibly annoying but also really (laughs) invigorating to work with is the impression you get but he just absolutely loves everything to do with cinema and he loves everyone on his team who involved with like watching him direct the kids in the game show sequences in magnolia is like is really wonderful so yeah i think that that's kind of the sort of mishmash answer to your question ed (laughs) i think it's Mm. uh because you know 
I think about like for example other sort of gateway figures to me and for me with like stand-up for example which is something that I used to do <laughs> before <laughs> everything anyway <laughs> moving on Bill Hicks was such a gateway stand-up for me sure because that was the first time I saw someone who was kind of that anti-authoritarian and would go to those places but also he was quite limited mm. and, and you know there is of course the absolute shame that he died so young but he did the same material an awful lot for several years um and it was yeah. it did get to the point where it's like well i don't want to write a new joke other than uh, talking about Jimi hendrix again i don't know but there is that thing where it's like it's knowing that there's so much beyond that and tracking their influences and who they influenced and I don't, I, it's kind of annoying because I don't feel like it's all across Wikipedia, but like for philosophers, there's always an influenced by and then influenced, <laughs> which mm. I really like because then you get this kind of little cloud of, oh, we can kind of trace all of these, all of these strands. But, you know, that's how I started listening to like Kinnison and then um, various other people, you know, I mean, everyone sort of claims to be. <laughs> Influenced by Bill Hicks in one way, shape, or form. I guess because you can't get angry with anyone and say no, you fucker. <laughs> um, quite possibly, but yeah, it's um, that real kind of uh, Alice in Wonderland moment, which is like I, I didn't realize things could look like this or feel like this or be about this. Mm. I think I think it's interesting. You you mentioned mentioning uh, Linklater and Winterbottom like yeah you know kind of like pairing them up that way because you that just reminded me that they both kind of explored the same idea in boyhood and every day where uh every day was the movie that he did with with john sims where like they filmed a day uh, a year for several years because the idea was like he's in prison and it's all like is every the whole movie is a series of prison visits with his family as they age in real time and I just find that really interesting that you know two filmmakers who usually I wouldn't think of like in like connection with each other, other than the fact that you know they both kind of like came up at the same time on different sides of the Atlantic, settled on this same interesting conceit for for two disparate projects and movies. But you're right in terms of like I think what's nice about them is that they do work so much and they do so many different things in different genres that you know just by following their work you kind of get introduced to different actors or different kind of like concepts quite a lot like you could watch the newton boys the like not especially good like period crime movie that richard link later made in the late 90s but through that you can think well you know like it's a it's in a good setting you know what other movies are kind of like set there and you could you know be drawn into bonnie and clyde or looking at um just like actual like film noirs or heist movies i think there's something really quite quite cool about that like that some people who are that prolific even though i think it can mean that they don't necessarily make that many like truly great movies because their energies are just being expanded so much can like introduce you to a lot of stuff if they make a lot of movies one as well in terms of like just mentioning heist movies there i feel like michael mann was a big yeah. gateway filmmaker for me through heat because like heat is such a kind of like broadly popular 
like movie like it's a great heist movie it's got great performances it's got great action but uh, that you can kind of watch it it kind of like runs the gamut of like pretty much everyone who likes those kind of movies but like if you then followed michael mann as i did you know after seeing heat then you get to like collateral and miami vice and public enemies and you're like oh right i've suddenly found myself on the cutting edge of digital cinema (laughs) and just kind of (laughs) and like that's quite an interesting gateway for me because you've gone from you know someone making this like incredibly kind of like commercial and like really kind of like um populist entertainment in in heat and you know kind of like the peak of that kind of filmmaking to someone who's like doing a lot of like quite avant-garde stuff and that's kind of that's kind of a nice gateway filmmaking thing as well, where you kind of latch onto someone when they're doing something relatively kind of like normal, and then when they kind of go in their own unique direction, you get exposed to stuff that you wouldn't see before. Like I, I'm not sure I would have as much of an appreciation for the potential of digital cinematography if I hadn't seen what Michael Mann would do with it and if I wouldn't have been willing to take that excursion if I hadn't seen Heat at an impressionable age and thought I have to see everything this guy has done because this is awesome yeah Steven Soderbergh for me as well mm-hmm. sex yeah. lies and videotape and again someone who is uh doing a lot of things um mm-hmm. but I love that he can do Ocean's Eleven and Contagion again with yeah. some of the same actors um in the same way that Richard Linklater can do a Scanner Darkly and the School of Rock. (laughs) Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and in such close proximity as well. Like, Mm. that's one of the things. Or, or like, uh, it's quite funny, because I I watched Ocean's 12 for the first time recently, and it's just really... it's just really funny watching that and like Albert Finney shows up. It's like, oh yeah, Steven Soderbergh was just all about that in the early 2000s. He's just gonna, he's gonna find a role for Albert Finney, whatever he can do, and God bless him for that. But yeah, I think Soderbergh's kind of like a great one for that as well. Because if you got into him in like the, the early 2000s when he was at his commercial height and where, like if you were, you know, an Empire reader, as you and I both were, like you maybe don't know about his weirdness at that point. Like you're unlikely to have seen Kafka or Schizopolis. You, you'll know him as the guy who did Out of Sight yeah. and the Oceans movies. And then suddenly over the next couple of years it's like okay now here's bubble here's the good here's the good german you're kind of like oh wow this guy is trying a lot of stuff and you know it's not all working but it's all kind of like fascinating uh yeah and he's definitely someone who just through his career is kind of like a gateway to a bunch of different stuff absolutely and yeah the last one i have on my list of like who were just like hugely important for just introducing me to a whole area of cinema I otherwise probably wouldn't have had much time for um, is Miyazaki Mm. or Spirited Away. Like I bought Spirited Away on DVD. I remember buying that for like cheap in FOP, Mm. probably like their £5 DVD offer or something. And it just becoming like a constant soundtrack to my first year at uni, mainly because the score is so lovely. So it was like a nice thing to have on in the background if I was working. But like that movie just like was so i think so keyed into a specific kind of loneliness that i was feeling you know like having just moved away from home for the first time and trying to navigate this new social situation that i was in you know living in halls and like being more more um responsible for myself than i had been at any other point in my life prior to that and it really kind of like connected with me 
And so there, I was like, oh, what else's movies has this guy done? <laughs> and just kind of like looking through, oh, I'll watch Princess Monroe, okay, oh, wow. Uh, I'll watch Porco Rosso, oh, my God. And like just like going back through it and seeing all of his movies and just being completely overwhelmed by what kind of like a brilliant, beautiful filmmaker he is. And from there, just kind of that being the thing that finally got me to start watching, you know, anime. Like, you know, I, I would not consider myself an expert on anime in any major way but like it is something that i like to kind of keep tabs on and i'll try and watch like the stuff that everyone like kind of like bubbles to the surface and i don't think i would make even that kind of like token effort if i hadn't seen spirited away at that point and just been so completely kind of like drawn into it and, and really fallen in love with the style and the outsized emotions and all the stuff that i think anime in general does really really well I feel you. I don't think I would have been quite as open to, and I'm going to describe it flippantly, but real miserablest European cinema if I hadn't mm. watched Rosetta by the Darden brothers when I did. Yeah, yeah. Because it's just such a, like, in terms of, like, cinema verite, but also, like, very stylized, um, and something very different from, like, the French New Wave and the kind of influence of um left bank philosophers and and things like that um something that is incredibly real and with a sort of social issue focus but like absolutely Mm. stunning performances and kind of trace like kind of tracing the influence of i just always remember the kind of how close the camera is to the back of her head when she's walking anywhere, yeah. everywhere she's walking, she's practically running because she's just under so much strain and the camera's almost invasive, but we feel every part of her struggle. And then seeing that in like the wrestler in Black Swan and Darren Aronofsky's mm. films and being like, maybe Daz has watched a little bit of the Dardens, possibly. But I just think it gave me such an incredible template and like foundation to seek out other films and be like, well, maybe it's not just all grim because there's so much kind of i don't know vitality and conflict um and character in rosetta so yeah Mm. those those boys have got a lot to answer for (laughs) yeah i think for me the sun was like the real like the 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 movie from the dardens that i first saw that really kind of made me think oh or the child whichever one is called and they may have one called the Mm. son and one called the child (laughs) um but um where what i found like really amazing about it and what really kind of like blew me away was like you say it has that that intimacy that realism that sense of a lack of style to it but the energy and the structure of it are so tight like it feels like a thriller and that was a really important thing for me to realize that form does not necessarily dictate function like you can have something that feels very real but like in terms of plotting and in terms of pacing can be just like a real kind of like pacey piece of work like it doesn't have to be like everything that's gritty and social realist is like you know kind of like aimless or or like has to adhere to like you can have something that stylistically looks like real life but feels like a little more artificial if you kind of like get to the bones of it and i think that's like a really kind of useful lesson to learn i think in terms of 
you know, when you're you're young and you're trying to get into movies for the first time of trying to break away from your preconceived notions that everything has to kind of like fall neatly into boxes. So we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot vs. Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Well, I'm not trying to be all, you could write King Lear, because <laughs> I think we're all absolutely sick to, the idea, uh, sick to death of the idea of uh, self-improvement within within lockdown and actually let's all just have a nice rest it's winter and and we should hibernate and we've all been through far too much already anywho in the event that anyone is interested in possibly writing king lear or similar um i cannot recommend novelista by claire askew enough i'm not sure if i'm saying it right claire apologies and disclosure i do know claire because i went on her excellent co- run course about uh the history of witchcraft which spoiler guys if you look any into anything to do with witches it's really about um oppressed and marginalized people who are inconvenient to the current regime anywho novelista is a really accessible joyful writing guide on how to write a novel um and it is such a great um primer for anyone who's never written like anything before but also Claire has great experience being a creative writing teacher and a novelist um and it's just a really fun read as well so even if you're like oh maybe not right now but it just feels like Claire is talking to you and I think we can all do with um reads that are easy on the eye in so many ways so that's Novelista by Claire Askew. Cool I'm going to recommend a movie that came out last year that I caught up with this week and which I was really uh, impressed by. It's called The Painter and the Thief. It's a Norwegian documentary about a painter whose uh, work is stolen from a gallery. Two of her paintings are stolen and she meets and befriends one of the thief when he's at trial and he agrees to sit for her for paintings and through that they develop a friendship and it's all about the friendship that comes from that and their both respective lives over the next kind of like couple of years, the different directions that it goes. And it's a really beautifully shot, really well edited and constructed work of nonfiction that, um, you know, has this really interesting non-linear approach to it where, you know, it will tell you part of the story, then it will go back to tell it from a different perspective. You know, it kind of hides details from you in order to reveal them later it's very cleverly constructed for like maximal impact and you know it it walks up to the line of being exploitative in that respect in where you feel like you're being manipulated but i think it has such empathy for both of its subjects that it it remains kind of like humane up until the end like it never feels as if it's just trying to tug at your heartstrings because the two characters particularly the, the the thief of the title are so kind of like compelling and gone such a difficult journey together that you can't help but want the best for them and i really feel like the film wants the best for them as well it's on hulu here in the u.s at the moment and i'm sure it will eventually show up on streaming services in the uk at some point hopefully but it's a really impressive piece of work i was really really bowled over by it so that is the painter and the thief 
If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places, rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye.